0: First of all to say it's a great privilege to be back here again. I've been coming to pen conferences now for seven years and I will, as I've done before, I'll have a little booklet that you can take with you of the substance. So if you don't wish to take notes and just listen uh, everything that I'm going to say and there'll be a lot of footnotes in that booklet so there'll be other things that I don't in actual fact say. Amidst the mounting and moral and spiritual chaos that's taken place in the British Isles today, a new expression has been coined, and it's called fundamental, note the word, British values. These include democracy, the rule of law, and mutual respect and tolerance of those with different faiths and beliefs. Now, if the nation is to survive there has to be some sort of standard of conduct and the one that is put forward is said to be historically based and so it begs several questions. The first one is what do we mean by the rule of law? Does it mean that legislators can do as they like as long as they follow the parliamentary process? What do we mean by toleration and how far back do we go in English history to find these fundamental values and to this I might add the question which is in the address what is the greatest British value where shall we begin maybe the best place to start is to go back a thousand years to the reign of Alfred the Great 871 to 900 or 899 depending which book you're reading He's first of all, he's acknowledged as founding the foundations of England to become a unified nation. And secondly, by common consent, he has the title of the Great. He lived at a time when the nation was in dire peril. Those of you who are students of history will know that the Vikings had had, uh, invaded Britain and it seemed only a matter of course before they conquered the whole of the nation. And it was at the lowest point at his life that he was on the run. And to all intents and purposes, it seemed as if the invaders were unstoppable. And here I might pause and say that one of the great dangers that we can sometimes fall into as Christians is this. We might think that the country has reached a low point, and I do not think that we would be wrong if we came to that conclusion. But but we mustn't allow it to cloud our faith in God, and nor nor to forget what Christ Jesus said when he said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Inevitably, there are several stories that have persisted about Alfred, and I'm not going to recount them here. But the more that you think about him, the more that the words of Micah, 7 verse 8, come to mind. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And that is the verse I believe for today for us as well, because eventually the tables were turned. As we know, Alfred drove back the Vikings and he secured a peace by the Treaty of Wedmore in AD 878. And in the years that followed, he used his time very wisely to improve the nation's defences, including the establishment of an effective navy. But for our purposes, rather than follow how eventually uh, Alfred was able to secure the Foundations of the English nation, I want us to notice one thing. He encouraged learning, he encouraged the establishment of law, and he wrote a law book and At the very beginning of this book of law for good government, he prefaced it with the ten commandments and i 'm sure as you entered these premises, you probably noticed that the Ten Commandments are very prominently displayed here because they are the foundation commandments for any nation, and certainly for any church. And in founding the the Christian faith and the Ten Commandments as the basis for the nation, he set the nation on a course that it was to continue with for hundreds of years. And here we move several hundreds of years forward. We move to Henry VIII. Now, when I was giving this address... I did stop to think whether I ought to mention Magna Carta, but I concluded that other people will probably touch on it, and in fact, it doesn't directly relate to the subject of my address. Henry VIII, I'm sure you've all heard of him. He was a prince of Welsh extraction. His father, Henry VII, won the Battle of Bosworth Field, and so he started the House of Tudor. Henry Eighth was a man of religious disposition. But we couldn't remotely regard Henry Eighth as having ruled in the fear of the Lord, such as David laid down and is recorded in 2 Samuel 12, 23, verse 2, which is the standard of kingship. Nevertheless, something happened in Henry VIII's reign, which is of importance in us tracing what is the greatest British value? It was in Henry VIII's reign that he acquired a title. Now I'm sure you're familiar with it, because if you look on your coins, except Manx coins, which don't strangely carry it, you'll see def, or FD, short for FIDIAe Defensor, which means the defender of the faith. Now all the history books will tell you, quite correctly, that the title was explicitly given to Henry VIII on October the 17th, 1521, by Pope Leo X. And it was in acknowledgement for a book that Henry wrote which was called In Defense of the Seven Sacraments. And then the break came with Rome in the 1530s. And in 1538, the next pope, Pope Paul III, withdrew the title and yet I've just remarked that if you look on your coinage, you'll find that the title's still there. So the question is, how is it that the monarch's still the defender of the faith if the Pope took the title off them? Well, there was an Act of Parliament in 1543. And most history books will tell you that that was the Act that granted Henry the title of Defender of the Faith, and I do not know of a single book that doesn't say that. But this is pen conference, and we always want to move things on and to put a few other thoughts as well and not just take as read everything we read in a book. So what I did, I went down to the Tinwood Library, which for those who are unfamiliar with the Isle of Man, it's where the Manx legislature is. And I got all the ancient acts of English uh, laws. We've got the Manx ones as well. And I looked up the 1543 Act. And when I came to read it, I found something very interesting indeed. And I would suspect that many of the historians, not being used to reading statutes and probably not being law trained, have assumed that because the Act mentions the defender of the faith, that was when it was granted. But I read it very carefully. And the first thing, without boring you about legals... Is I noticed that the short title, the title at the beginning said that it was a ratification act. That's an interesting word. When you ratify something, you endorse or approve something that already exists. That was the first clue. The second clue is that when you look at the act, it is not just about defender of the faith. It's about a lot of other things as well. It, is not, it does not say, therefore, an act of parliament to grant his most gracious majesty the title of defender of the faith. It doesn't say that. It just says a ratification act of the king's style. In other words, the titles that he's already known of. They were putting it into statutory language. The third thing I would say is that in those days, when they had an act of parliament... They used to have an introduction, which we call in law a preamble, and the preamble or introduction would give you a little bit of the historical reason why the Act was passed in the first place. But when you read the preamble, it does not particularly mention the defender of the faith, and it certainly doesn't mention the Pope. That is quite interesting because the Act says that is confirming what the king has already been known by, or as they put it in the quaint language, notoriously known by. And so, the Act says that he has been known as Henry VIII, well, he'd been known as Henry VIII since 1509. He's, by grace of God, the king of England, France and Ireland. Well, he wasn't really king of France, that was a bit of a pretense, but he had been claiming that since 1509. It then goes on to say, he is defender of the faith and of the Church of England, and also of Ireland, in earth, the supreme head. Now in analysing it, you find that Henry had been king since 1509, so in saying that he was Henry VIII was saying nothing new. What about being governor of the church? Well there had been a specific act of parliament ten years earlier, that said he was supreme head of the church. So it was simply repeating something that was already there. So what about this defender of the faith? And the fact is that the way the act is worded, it doesn't say that it's granting him that title, and nor does it say that the Pope had taken the title off him. I would have expected it would have said that, and I'll tell you why. Because when you look at some other Acts of Parliament of the period, they do make reference to the religious turmoil of the day. But the Act is completely silent. It talks as if Henry has already got that title, and it's simply just acknowledging what he already has. And so that raises a question in my mind. If the Act was not granting him the title, and I would disagree with all those history books that say that it say that it did grant it to him. The question is, well, when was it granted to him? What date? Was it in 1521, when Pope Leo X granted it? Now, the Act makes no mention of that. So the only conclusion that you can come to is this, that when Henry came to the throne, the Act, in effect, is inferring that he already was the defender of the faith. And so therefore, when the Pope granted him that title, there was nothing really to grant, he was just simply acknowledging what he already was. And when he tried to take it off him, well, he could no more do that than he could take off him the title of King of England. Now, if that is what the meaning of the act is truly, I'm sure that would have appealed to Henry greatly. It would have flattered him, and he was a very proud man, and he would have liked the thought that the Pope never took that title off me. I already was defender of the faith. And so, we move on a little bit. What does it mean that the king, or queen, is defender of the faith? It talks about the monarch's responsibilities rather than their rights. In turn, it's a very powerful reminder, and it's a reminder of Romans 13, verse 1, of which sight has been totally lost in this day and generation. That all political power is delegated to governments around the world by God, and that means that they must be just, and they must rule in accordance with the word of God. Now, this question about responsibilities is a very important one, because when the Stuart monarchs came to the throne... They said that they ruled by divine right after 1603 and they led to an awful amount of trouble. Incidentally, a 100 years ago, Kaiser Wilhelm II, whose name has rather faded from the news just now, uh, who was emperor of Germany when the First World War started, he had the strong view as well of the divine right of kings and that led to some very disastrous consequences, as we all, ne- all know from history. I would like to point out to you also that he's called Defender of the Faith. There have been moves in recent times to say that a uh, future monarch might want to be Defender of Faith. Let me tell you, if that is going to happen, they'll have to pass an Act of Parliament. They'll have to repeal the 1543 Act of Henry VIII, because it is still in force. C.H. Spurgeon once said, liberty to hold our opinions but not to spread them is no liberty, for one of our main opinions is that we should bring all around us to Jesus. And therefore, I think it's true to conclude that defender of the faith means defender of the Christian faith, And that Parliament was saying that it is of particular importance that the head of state, whoever that head of state is, should be seen in that capacity because the Christian faith was to be regarded of the utmost importance. What would it mean in practice that the monarch could actually do? There's only one monarch recorded in history who ever did something with regard to the defender being defender of the faith. And that was George II. George II's time, and I have to say, he wasn't a massively godly monarch in many ways, but he did do one thing. The Methodists were being much persecuted. And somebody brought the matter to His Majesty's attention. And His Majesty famously said that as long as he was king, no one was going to be persecuted for their faith. What else does defender of the faith mean? If you want the monarch to be defender of the faith, you've got to help the monarch to do that. And so it also means that no law should ever be passed which is contrary to the Christian faith because here you have an anomaly If you're asking the monarch to be defender of the faith, and then you go and pass laws which are contrary to the Christian faith, then you're asking the monarch to do two totally contradictory things. You're asking the monarch on the one hand to defend it, on the other hand you're asking the monarch to sign away those things which actually will safeguard the Christian faith. And that, quite frankly, does not make sense to put it lightly. Let's move on. Let's move to 1688. Now back in 2013 I talked to you about the Coronation Oath and I do need to return to this for the greatest British value because it is of fundamental importance. Do you know, I would think the Coronation Oath Act is one of the most forgotten acts on the Statute Book. I read a good great deal about whether the monarch can refuse the royal assent I've read some very learned opinions. And, you know, each learned opinion talks of all kinds of fanciful situations, but I am yet to read of a single one. It may be out there, but I haven't caught up with it yet, which actually points out that the Coronation Oath Act puts a statutory duty upon the monarch to the utmost of her power to maintain the laws of God, well, they're out there for you to see, and the true profession of the gospel. Now, why was that passed in 1688? The answer was that before 1688, it wasn't clear what the monarch's oath was, so they wanted to make it very plain, that was Parliament. The second thing was that before 1688, there had been a certain number of troubles On the religious field, which had actually come from the monarchs, James II in particular, who was overthrown in 1688, and so they wanted to make it quite clear what the monarch was there to do and what the monarch was not there to do. But there was a strong implication in those words. Everybody assumed in 1688 that it was the monarch they got to keep in line, not Parliament. But when you read the Act properly. You have to say to yourself, if Parliament asked Elizabeth II in 1952 on, Fev- on November the fourth, and also on June the second, 1953, solemnly to swear, without which she couldn't be queen, to uphold the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel, then surely it becomes baffling in the extreme as to some of the legislation that they present to Elizabeth II to be signed. And it's even more baffling that they should suggest that it would be totally wrong for the Queen to refuse the royal assent. But let me move on to one other thing, because I covered a lot of that in 2013. Something else happened in 1689. They passed, Parliament passed an act called the Toleration Act. Now, toleration is one of these great British values. One of these fundamental British values. And I might just pause to say, are you ever worried about being called a fundamentalist? Please don't be. Because now we've got fundamental British values, and I take it that those people who are going to uphold them also will be fundamentalists, so they're in good company if they're in company with you, except that they'd be in better company if the fundamental values they were upholding were directly those of the Christian faith. But I come back to the Toleration Act. During the 18th century, 17th century, for those of you who are acquainted with history, if you were not an Anglican clergyman, you couldn't really preach. If you tried to preach like in this pulpit or anywhere else, well, it was forbidden. It was against the law. The only people who could preach were Anglican clergymen, And they had to be in an Anglican pulpit. If you went out in the street, street preaching, like a certain well-known minister of uh, Penfrey Methodist Church, then you would be in breach of the law. Many ferocious acts had been passed in the 1660s. And you would be likely to be arrested. And if you were like John Bunyan, who wrote the famous Pilgrim's Progress, you might get sent to prison for many years. He had 12 years in Bedford jail in which he used his time very wisely in writing a book that has become a great Christian classic now in 1688 1689 it occurred to parliament that what had been going on was very unfair was very unjust and so they passed an act called toleration act but i want you to look at this carefully not because i seek uh, to boring about history and so on because I'm sure that some of the younger folk perhaps listened through many a lecture on history and they haven't been exactly captivated by it. It's because it captures the real meaning of this word toleration which has changed in its meaning and we need to grasp that as Christians. So what did toleration mean in 1689? Because it's one of those historical values. It meant this. The Anglican Church, who would be represented in Parliament, was saying, We still don't agree with these non Anglican preachers. We're certainly not going to join them. We certainly don't really agree with them having their preaching houses, but we're going to put up with them. That's really what toleration means. I don't agree with what you're saying. I'm really against what you're saying, but I don't think that you ought to be arrested, fined and imprisoned for saying it. I think you should be free to say it, but I'm not going to come and join you. And so those Anglican members of Parliament who passed the Toleration Act in 1689 were certainly not thinking of coming to non-Anglican churches and preaching in their pulpits, and they certainly weren't thinking of joining street preachers out there and preaching alongside with them but they were willing to tolerate them. And so history says, quite rightly, that toleration is one of the great British values. And it certainly helped in the 18th century. That's why Wesley was able to go around and preach. He would have a licence, licence granted by the courts, That's why Hugh Bourne in the 19th century, the primitive Methodists could go around and preach in the open air because they were licensed. They had to get one from the quarter sessions and there's a photograph of Stafford Quarter Sessions of the building where he would have gone to in the booklet I'll give you later. But we need to get clear that when that liberty was granted Parliament was not saying that it agreed with what they were doing. And yet, something strange has happened today. In my lifetime, toleration has changed its meaning. It happened in the 1970s. In the 1970s, before then, in schools, you would have Christian religious education taught. And then it was said that we could no longer really teach exclusively Christian education because in the name of toleration, we'd really got to fuse it with a lot of other faiths and beliefs. We got to sort of have a mishmash of it, and so it grew. And those who didn't agree with what was going on, who said, no, 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 you could do that in another lesson, but you don't change the religious education lesson. If you want to explain about people about what they believe that can be done elsewhere in the curriculum but you don't attack the religious education lesson because you're not giving religious instruction or education you're actually just pointing out that there are different people who have different views and that even if you don't agree with them that they should be allowed the liberty of their views the same as you're allowed yours. But strangely, in the 70s and 80s, what happened was that if you didn't run along with this new multi-religious syllabus put forward in the name of toleration, do you know what you were called? You were called intolerant. And many people were frightened of that, including Christians. Just the same as Christians, sadly, are sometimes frightened of the words that are bandied at them today, like fundamentalists, though I hope you'll take with you what I've pointed out about what's going on with the great British values. And they would not stand up for the Christian faith because they didn't want to be called intolerant. And if only they'd gone to a dictionary and looked up what the word toleration meant, they would find that they were actually right in the centre of it. Let me put it another way. Tomorrow, I'm going to be privileged to take the message at this church and I have been looking forward to that for a long time if when I reached the pulpit I suddenly said to all those people sitting there I tolerate your views they would think one of two things well first of all they think he's a bit offensive but they would also think he must have changed his opinions because if you tolerate somebody's view you're saying you don't agree with them You have a fundamentally different view, but you're willing to put up with them. And in fact, let me say to you, this word toleration is actually a little bit condescending. I know it's put forward now as a most wonderful standard. There's a far better one in Scripture. Do you know what it is? If you look in Scripture, you won't find much about toleration. The biblical word is forbearance. And if only people, if only Christians would talk about forbearance and not keep repeating this word toleration, or at least only use the word in the meaning that it actually bears, then they would be not only a lot happier, but they would be starting to make some real advances in the cause of Christ. As you know, since we were gathered here last year, another historical Has happened. Prior to this year, the longest reigning monarch was Queen Victoria. That is no longer true. The longest reigning monarch of the United Kingdom is now Queen Elizabeth II. But let's go to Queen Victoria. Because during her reign, an ambassador came to her and he asked her this question Your Majesty, What is the secret of Britain's greatness? And the Queen placed her hand on a Bible. She said to the ambassador, when you go back, tell your prince that this is the source of Britain's greatness. And very strongly implied in her reply was obedience to God's word. And there can be no doubt that the greatest British value has been just that. History is very firmly on the Christian side. But the spirit of the age isn't. It it is common knowledge. In fact, we might ask, and people are asking in the Isle of Man, and I'm sure they're asking here, why... Is there such a growing antagonism to the true Christian faith? And the answer is ever so simple. It's because the nation is in a state of moral meltdown. Isaiah 1 verses 5 and 6 describes it extremely well and I cannot improve upon it. Isaiah says this, The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. In other words, it isn't just disobedience. There is an out and out rebellion against the word of God and that is the society in which those who are of younger years, in which you are being challenged and the one that you will be living to see some of the consequences of. But you know, there's one danger when we look at some of the extraordinary things that are going on today, and they are extraordinary, we must never lose sight of the fact that however dark the day, then the day spring from on high is always with us as it's put so beautifully in Luke. And Jesus said that in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world there can be no doubt that the days of ease if ever they existed have gone but you know see that as a great challenge you see when i was growing up things were undoubtedly easier you didn't have the severe challenges that you have today we used to sing about them stand up stand up for jesus ye soldiers of the cross lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss, and then... But when we were out in society, we didn't have the increasingly severe challenges that there are today, and now we have a great privilege, you know, look upon it like that. We have the most immense privilege to start to put into action the faith that We have taught, we have the same privilege to join all those people that we've often talked about in the 18th century and the 17th century and earlier, and we have stood amazed at their tenacity and their steadfastness. Well, we've now got the opportunity to do the same. Charles Wesley told us how we should pray. I'm a great supporter of Wesley's hymns, and I know that you are at Penfree Methodist Church. I'm also a great supporter of putting verses back that people have taken out. (laughs) Forth in thy name, O Lord, I go. I can guarantee there's a verse that you won't find in many books because it's vanished at a long time ago, and it's a wonderful verse. And this is what Wesley said. Preserve me from my calling snare and hide my simple soul above, above the thorns of choking care the gilded baits of worldly love. That is the first thing. Get that in your mind. It'll be in the booklet. And try and learn it, as I've managed to do, although I read it here in case I misquoted it. Next, you need some reassurance in the day in which we live. And the reassurance, I think, comes from Psalm 100, verse 4, but there are other verses as well. I've only just... Use this as an example. The first thing, if you really believe that obedience to God is the greatest British value, as I trust you do, and I certainly do, and it supersedes all other values, because in a hundred years' time, when none of us will be here, that will be the value that will prevail, and all the others will be swept away and forgotten about. In Psalm 100, we're told the Lord, he is God, And therefore, as Psalm 125 says, therefore, they that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. And so don't be moved away from what you believe in. Don't be pressurised into doing something different. Stand firm, stand fast. You may suffer for it. Therefore, read 1 Peter Chapter 4, verses 12 to about 20, and he'll tell you all about how you meet with suffering, especially suffering as a Christian. The second thing, remember that Psalm 100 tells us that he has made us, and not we ourselves. Therefore, I have to say that if I was back where I began my early life, and that was in primary education, in today's economy of things, I wouldn't last very long. I'll tell you why. Why? I'm not going to tell the children that this world evolved because I don't believe it. I am going to tell them, as I always used to in those far off days, you will see books around which will tell you that the world evolved. But I have to tell you that I personally do not believe this. Why? Because the scripture says that that is not, that does not say that is how it happened. The scripture paints a far more reliable picture. The world evolving meant survival of the fittest. And that's not the God that I adore who doesn't just believe in survival of the fittest. That's a man-made doctrine. We have a far better one. And the third thing to remember is that we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, you've read that many times, I'm sure. And it means this, that the good shepherd said of his sheep, there are others that he must bring in Therefore, we mustn't abandon the gospel. We mustn't abandon the standards. We've got to be able to stand up for Jesus, surely, as other people did. But he goes on to say, Jesus went on to say, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so I'm going to leave you with these thoughts. There's some words of my own make. As a thought of how you can go forward with the greatest British value, where the mindset of the age will be totally against you and certainly will not recognise obedience of God's word as being the greatest British value. And these are my final thoughts. Where the heart's wholly set upon God's will alone, when the mind's wholly set that God's will must be done, where the hands wholly set to serve God while it's day, nothing whatever will lead you astray.